Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made of heaven and earth. Okay, welcome to the School of St. Philip Neri. And uh, as you probably all know, we've been focusing on, in particular, on Philip Neri this year since this is the 500th anniversary of his birth. And since about the beginning of this year, we've been looking at his spirituality, his spiritual teachings, and uh, he's proven to be a, a great guide in the spiritual life. Uh, there's not much in the way of his writings. It's all through stories of his life and little sayings that he gave, but Philip was deeply rooted in the spiritual tradition of the church and was able to communicate that in, in a very gentle and joyful spirit uh, to those who gathered around him. And tonight we're looking at uh, solitude and silence and its importance for the spiritual life. And Philip, I think, is a, a particularly good guide in how to uh, live this in the midst of a city. We often think of silence and solitude as being for those living in the desert. And uh, Philip shows us how it is still important for us, and perhaps even more so living in the world, that we would maintain uh, a kind of silence and solitude in our life where we can be immersed in, in deep prayer so that we're not being formed simply by the world and the noise around us, but we're listening deeply to God in our day-to-day -day life. Uh, as always, we want to begin... Uh, as they often did in Philip's time with, uh, with a hymn. And so we'll begin this evening with I Heard the Voice of Jesus in the opening page of your program. And then following that, Deacon Paul will give a, a, a little reading from uh, Bocci, one of Philip's biographers uh, of an early period from Philip's life where he already began to embrace a certain level of solitude. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Come unto me and rest. Lay down the weary one, lay down thy head upon my breast. I came to Jesus as I was Oh, 
side named Romolo, an industrious man who went from Florence into the kingdom of Naples and for many years was in business at San Girolamo, San Germano, a, a town at the foot of Monte Cassino, until at length he had amassed a fortune of more than 22,000 crowns, which in those times was a very considerable sum. Now when Philip was about 18 years old and instructed in human literature beyond the average, he was sent by his father to this uncle with the intent that, after an apprenticeship, he should be his heir, Romolo having no one near of kin to whom he might leave his property. By order, therefore, of his father, he went to San Germano, where his uncle received him with much affection. Here he behaved himself in such a manner that Romolo discovered his good qualities, and in no long time determined to declare him heir of all that he had. But God, who had destined him to greater things, thwarted this design. For when Philip had lived there for some time, he felt himself inwardly spurred to embrace a more perfect state, and considering how riches, and especially trading, stood in the way of perfection, he began to think within himself of altering his manner of life, and his thought was quickened not a little by a devotion which he adopted in those parts. Near to the gate of Gaeta, not far from San Germano, there is a celebrated mountain, which, according to a very ancient and common tradition, is one of those which opened at our Savior's death. It belongs to the Benedictine Fathers of Monte Cassino, who have a church there dedicated to the Most Holy Trinity. This mountain is split from top to bottom by three huge fissures, and in the middle one, which is the steepest, there is a little chapel on a rock, under the care of the monks, and on it there is a crucifix painted which the sailors salute with their guns as they pass under. Here Philip was in the habit of retiring for prayer and meditation on the Lord's Passion. It was during these retirements that his disdain of earthly things grew on him little by little, and he deliberated on the best means of putting in execution the design which he had conceived ever since his coming to San Germano, of leaving trade and giving himself up to God and embracing a state of life in which he could serve him with less hindrance. When his uncle became aware of this, he endeavored by every possible means to dissuade him from his purpose, proposing what he had already designed to make him heir of all his fortune. He bade him also think of his family, of which he was the last representative, and above all not to adopt lightly a resolution of such importance, adding that he had not expected Philip would behave in a manner hardly reconcilable and with proper gratitude to him for his many acts of kindness. Philip at once, putting away from himself all hope of earthly riches, answered with the modest brevity befitting such resolutions, that he never should forget his uncle's kindness, but as to the rest, he was more touched with his affection than inclined to follow his advice.
Okay. I chose this little reading from Bachi because it shows us that already early on in Philip's life, a teenager, 18 years old, that Philip had a sense of the importance of a life of prayer. And if you've ever been to Gaeta, it is a place of great solitude and prayer along the Mediterranean Sea. And there's even a little place uh, in the niche of the rocks called Philip's Bed where he would take rest in the middle of the night as he would break his prayer and then go back to it. And, but Philip had a, a deep sense early on, and this has always been the thing that has impressed me about him, uh, of being attentive to where the Holy Spirit would guide him in, in life, and not looking to be shown the full picture all at once, either. That he entered into prayer to listen to God in order to be able to discern where God was drawing him, but uh, it often wasn't more than a step ahead. And for him, that was to, to go to Rome uh, rather than take up this position uh, that his uncle was offering, which was no small thing, as you heard. Philip could have been a man of wealth and also helped to support uh, his family, and yet he felt this deeper calling uh, from God to, to embrace a life of holiness, not really knowing what that would mean for him. And it's immediately after this that he goes to Rome and takes up again this kind of deep solitude and, and silence and prayer uh, there in Rome in, in the midst of the deep silence of the catacombs for the first ten years there especially uh, immersed in very deep prayer. And uh, one imagines that perhaps in the shadow of Monte Cassino that Philip picked up something of this importance of, of prayer and solitude uh, so close to the Benedictines was he at that point. Uh, what I want to do here this evening, our reading in, in the program is, is fairly short, and I thought that it might be helpful to, to put the, the ideas of solitude and silence uh, in context before we, we read, or put Philip's thoughts in context before we, we read it. Because I think if we look at Philip in the context of the whole spiritual tradition, we begin to see what a fine spiritual guide he was and how deeply rooted and informed he was by that tradition. And so if you bear with me here a little bit, I'll try not to go on too long, although it did turn out to be eight pages and I had the last minute <laughs> cut, cut and tear away. But I'm going to focus first on, in particular, on solitude as the, the, the sort of the... Uh, the place where silence is practiced, that we, we have to separate ourselves, as, as it were, uh, from the noise of the world and our day-to-day -day life in order to have a kind, even to make silence and the silence of prayer a possibility for us, that it's very hard to, to pray on the bus or in the midst of great crowds, even though we are called to form our hearts in such a way that we can do that, uh, nonetheless, we, we do need those periods where we, we draw away from others, where we retire to a place of greater silence. Uh, in the Imitation of Christ, Thomas Kempis says, unless you like solitude, it's not safe for you to appear in public. Uh, so it's a, a different notion, I think, for us of, of solitude. I think in our day, solitude is seen as a kind of punishment. And the only time that people speak of solitude or a solitary life is in regards to prison. 
And so the idea of liking it or loving it or valuing, valuing it so much that we do everything that we can to have it as a part of our life may seem very foreign to us, especially in the West. I think we're used to a, a culture that is constantly going and constantly filled with noise. And so we have to try to develop uh, this longing for, for solitude and, in our lives and to see it as a kind of friend and even companion to us. And this is what we see develop in Philip's life very early. It became a companion to him, a kind of friend. So immersed at 18 and then for those 10 years early in Rome in the catacombs, he really came to love and cherish it. And I just want to share with you first, though, a couple of thoughts from some of the fathers of the church that expressed the same importance or value of solitude. And the first example I have is from St. Jerome, the great scripture scholar. And he writes, O desert nourishing the flowers of Christ, O solitude which produces the firm rocks with which the city of the great king is constructed, O barren waste rejoicing in familiarity with God. In familiarity with God, the, the phrase sort of struck me, that there is a familiarity with God that is allowed to develop within the the, the, within solitude and the silence of solitude is as we pull back from the world and we engage more and more deeply in our, our prayer. It's there that we, God becomes someone who's familiar to us, no longer a stranger. We can enter into this silent discourse with him. St. Basil the Great says of solitude, a solitary life is the school in which heavenly doctrine is learned and a preparation for the practice of divine arts is given. It is a paradise of delights which emits the perfume of virtue. For there the roses of charity are enveloped in crimson flame, and no sudden squalls are able to destroy the violets of humility. There the myrrh of perfect mortification diffuses itself, and the incense of constant prayer hangs heavy on the air very poetic for one of the fathers of the church. and uh, But it captures, I think, all the things that we'll look at here throughout the course of the evening, that it is something that teaches us the divine arts. It's here that we learn the science of the fathers, the, what the life of prayer is about. It's here that we learn humility. It's in solitude that we also come to see with a greater clarity the passions that we have to struggle with. And it's there also in the solitude that we engage in the real battle against them. St. Bernard advises, if you are preparing the ear of the Spirit for the voice of God, a voice sweeter than honey and the honeycomb, then flee external cares, so that when your inner sense is disentangled and free, you may say with the prophet Samuel, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. For the voice of God does not speak amid the din and bustle of the world, nor is it heard in any public gathering. Rather, secret counsel seeks to be heard also in secret. And so because of this, happiness will be given to us if we listen to God in solitude. Secret counsel seeks to be heard in secret. The God seeks a kind of intimacy with us in order that he might communicate to us the deeper truths of the spiritual life. And we can't expect uh, to, to hear this in, in the noise of the world. 
uh, in the world we don't find uh, a deep love for God or uh, a cherishing of the life of virtue. And so there has to be a willingness on our part to embrace as a constant kind of discipline for ourselves, especially those living in the world, to, pull, to retire into that solitude in order that we might be able to step back into the world and engage the world specifically as Christian men and women, that we're not being formed and shaped by the culture, but rather formed and shaped by the, by the Word of God. See here, St. Bernard then goes on to say, we must also, in a sense, flee from our friends, our relatives, and neighbors if we want to be saved in solitude. And that might seem a little bit harsh, but uh, I think this, this point is well taken, that even in those good relationships, those that really nourish us, those that are most important to us, there has to be a willingness to st step back into solitude. The true intimacy uh, can only take place with God and with each other when it arises out of this solitude with God. We only find the capacity to love others in the way that we should when we come to them in and through that relationship with God. And so in our friendships and marriages, it would always be important to have solitude built into one's life. I think married couples and those living in uh, religious communities at times were, were around each other so much that there is almost this expectation uh, that that would always be the case. And we can really get on each other's nerves and after a while lo lose our patience with each other. And I think it's only in stepping back and being able to see our, our lives, our commitments in the full perspective of our, of our relationship with God that we regain that capacity to look at those relationships for what they are, to cherish them, to not lose sight of, of their value in our lives. And so, as I said, our society is, is it's not a community that we could say is, that is radiant with the love of Christ. And there has, is this great need then that we don't become uh, blind to a dangerous state that we can find ourselves in at times. If we're caught up in the culture constantly, if we're never pulling back to examine our life the way that we're living, there's not going to be real growth in our relationship with God or capacity even to reflect upon what we're doing and if we're doing it in accord with the will of God. We need to be able to see those works that we're engaged in, as valuable as they might be, to see if they're really arising out of our own will or if they're in accord with the will of God. When we look at uh, ways to embrace it, uh, St. Uh, Francis de Sales came to mind, and he was also a close friend of, of Philip Neary, and he said specifically, and he was writing to those who are living in the world, uh, understanding that there were different demands placed upon them, that they nonetheless had to embrace uh, solitude as part of their day-to-day -day routine. And just a, a few little quotes I want to share from his writings with you, from Introduction to the Devout Life. He says, Just as birds have their nest on trees, to which they occasionally retire, and deer have bushes and thickets in which they conceal themselves in, or in order to enjoy the cool shade and the heat of the summer, so too we should choose some place. And he stresses every day, either at Mount Calvary or in the wounds 
of our Lord or in some place near to him, as a retreat to which we occasionally retire to refresh and recreate ourselves amidst our exterior occupations. And so even when we don't have the ability to do that, uh, for some reason during the course of our day, that we would learn to create that solitude within our hearts. Uh, St. Catherine of Siena said something similar, that we create a kind of cloister uh, in our hearts where we can retreat to be with Christ. So even when we're surrounded by a large group of people and engaged in our work, from time to time we can retreat into that silence, engage God, listen to Him, and then step back into our work. And so solitude can't be uh, an occasional kind of activity for us, the saints tell us, that it has to be a regular part of our spiritual life. If, it is order, if it's going to deepen over time, and if we're really going to be able to listen to God instead of listening to our own desires and wants. And that's part of the problem when we lack solitude. More often than not, we begin to listen to that voice within that isn't the voice of God, but rather the voice of our own passions, our appetites, and desires. It's only by mortifying ourselves, by stepping back into that deeper silence that we're able to examine our minds and our hearts and to see what's really motivating us on a deeper level. And so solitude in, in the, the uh, minds of the saints has a kind of priceless value to it. It shouldn't be held as something cheap. And that we might have to, to look at our lives in order to be able to gradually simplify them over time in order to regain the space that allows for the solitude that we would need. If uh, you've probably experienced in your own life or in the lives of family and friends that our time gets eaten up very quickly. And so even when space emerges, it is often filled with entertainment or work or something else. And when we begin to see solitude as essential for the spiritual life, then it has to be something that's blocked out for us or that we make sacrifices in order to maintain it. We might need to maintain a certain simplicity where we sacrifice certain legitimate entertainments in order to maintain the solitude where we can go to our room or go to the chapel every day in order to, to, to be with God. And this isn't as easy as it might sound, that uh, entering into uh, solitude can be a deeper mortification. We'll get to this uh, a little bit later, but it's often be called the crucifixion of the ego that to enter into solitude and the prayer that emerges from it means that God takes center stage, that we, we set our own selves and our own desires aside and allow God to come in to focus, uh, to die to self, as it were. And initially, that's not certainly going to be a, a pleasant thing for us, especially if we're used to filling our time or having a, a kind of uh, entertainment that's a regular part of our life, letting that go for something that doesn't seem to offer us very much, to sit in silence or in the darkness of the chapel of our room. We aren't necessarily going to do that with, with great ease. And so there is a kind of discipline that surrounds this. Uh, again, the author of The Imitation of Christ says, as often as I have been among men, I've returned less a man. <laughs> and again, that might seem a little bit 
uh, extreme. Uh, what, what is it that uh, is it, was it that Nietzsche said something about man being my, or is, uh, do I have the wrong philosophers that, that that man being my greatest kind of mortification? I found my my neighbor is hell. My neighbor is hell. Was that Nietzsche? Okay, that's not what the author of the Imitation of Christ is saying. <laughs> so, his name That's right. So that's what's not being put forward here, but it's it's saying that outside of that relationship with God, true friendship, true love, true intimacy is not a possibility. On some level, it's always going to break down. And so if we seek to sidestep it in our spiritual life, then our own sinfulness, the, the sinfulness of the world, uh, the sinfulness of others, is always going to be something that will corrupt our relationships. And so if we have that solitude to retreat to, we're able to examine our hearts, refresh ourselves, be re recreated to be able to enter back into them fully. And to do, not to do that is to come away diminished. We're going to find our neighbor or our spouse or our community member to be you know, something that's a drain on us. Some, they, they be, they're a source of diminishment for us rather than something that nour nourishes us because we've lost the ability to see them in the right light. Father, yes. Would an analog be the way sleep allows you to like refresh the body physically and be more alert? And I guess solitude would allow the soul to refresh itself right. and reconnect it. Psychologically, yes, that sleep brings a kind of a refreshment not only to body, but to mind. And there is something akin, I think, to uh, between uh, sleep and, and prayer, or sleep and dreaming, and, or contemplation and dreaming. We see it in Joseph. You know, man of God searching the scriptures is exhausted, falls asleep, and it's then in that that God communicates to him. And in a similar way, we enter into that silence, we quiet the mind and the heart, and we listen, and that's where God speaks to us, in and through the silence. And that's one of the things that's often difficult to understand about the spiritual life, because we, we think that nothing is taking place there uh, in that silence, when, when in reality the silence is pregnant with meaning and with God. And the more that we enter into that and allow ourselves to enter in and remain in it, the more refreshed we become. So much so that some of the Desert Fathers would say that one hour of prayer, deep prayer, is like three hours of sleep in, in the sense of the refreshment of mind, body, and soul that it gives. Any other thoughts or comments at this point? Following along so far? Okay. This brings us to silence, and one author says that it completes and intensifies solitude. So solitude provides the environment then for silence to emerge, and the kind of silence that leads us into an intimacy with God. It's solitude is practiced in action, and uh, Proverbs, we often see, I'll back up for a second, Silence in the scriptures we often see tied to speech, that where we begin to foster silence is remaining quiet, not talking, uh, an external kind of silence. And so in the Bible we find uh, something like this from Proverbs, where words are, many, sin is not wanting, many sins are not wanting, 
And also, even a fool, if he keeps silent, is considered wise. Uh, and in the New Testament, St. James goes so far as to state, if anyone does not fall short in speech, he is a perfect man. So to remain silent, not to necessarily speak your mind at every moment, is to grow in perfection. And Christ himself gives a kind of warning to us in the Gospel. He says, on the day of judgment, people will have to render an account for every idle word they have spoken. For by your words you will be saved, and by your words you will be condemned. That out of the heart the mouth speaks. And if our heart has not been purified by the silence of, of prayer, then what we speak is often going to be tainted with our, our sins and often be more wounding than healing to others. And so, uh, just so you don't think this is only a monastic thing, I pulled something out from somebody who's probably the most active uh, saint in, in recent times, uh, uh, Mother Teresa. And she said when, when asked about this, uh, Mother, what do you consider the most important thing in the training of your sisters? And she answered, silence, interior and exterior silence. Silence is essential in a religious house. The silence of humility, of charity, the silence of the eyes, of the ears, of the tongue. There is no life of prayer without silence. And then at another time she expanded on this philosophy of silence. She said that we need to find God, and he cannot be found in noise and restlessness. See how nature, the trees, the flowers, and the grass grow in perfect silence. And he requires us to be silent to discover him. We need, therefore, silence to be alone with God, to speak to him, to listen to him, to, do, to ponder his words and the deep secrets of our hearts. We need to be alone with God in silence to be renewed and to be transformed. For silence can give us a new outlook on life. In it we are filled with the grace of God, which makes us do all things with joy. So Mother Teresa, you know, more than any individual probably in modern times, we see as one completely invested in her service of others, but who had this profound realization that this could not be done uh, by mere human strength, that it had to emerge out of this relationship of love with God. How were they to love others like Christ unless they were first immersed in that love in and through silent prayer? And if Mother Teresa sees uh, silence as a friend, as the other saints do, we could see noise as a kind of enemy. And uh, there's an interesting uh, little quote I came across from C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters that, that captures it. Certainly it's, it's fiction, but uh, it, he, as always, he captures things very beautifully. He says, this is what the devil has to say. Music and silence, how I detest them both. How thankful we should be that ever since our father, that is Lucifer, entered hell, no square inch of infernal space and no moment of infernal time has been surrendered to either of those abominable forces but all has been occupied by noise. Noise, the grand dynamism, the audible expression of all that is exultant, ruthless, and virile. 
noise which alone defends us from silly qualms, despairing scruples, and impossible desires. We will make the whole universe a noise in the end. We've already made great strides in this direction as regards the earth. The melodies and silences of heaven will be shouted down in the end. I thought that was a nice sort of comparison with the value of silence to hear it expressed in, in this way, that, that it could be a threat to, to Satan himself, that if it does allow us to listen to God on a deeper level, if silence is the speech of God, then you would expect Satan to see it as an enemy and want in any way to disrupt it uh, in our lives, to make us give it less value than what it really deserves. When we think about silence, and I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here, John Paul II, St. John Paul II, uh, saw as the exemplar uh, for us Mary in, in her silence. And I just want to share with you uh, one final little quote about what he said in regards to her. Mary's silence, he stated, is not only moderation in speech, but it is especially a wise capacity for remembering and embracing in a single gaze of faith, the mystery of the Word made man and the events of his earthly life. It is this silence of acceptance of the Word, he stressed, this ability to meditate on the mystery of Christ that Mary passes on to believers. And in a noisy world filled with messages of all kinds, her witness enables us to appreciate a spiritually rich silence and fosters a contemplative spirit. And I bring this in at the end because it, I think it captures for us that, that silence isn't an end in itself. That it's not our simply uh, immersing ourselves in a thoughtless void. Our, our silence is always filled with God and should be filled with God as it was for Mary. It becomes that opportunity, that place for us to contemplate the mysteries of our faith. And with Mary, uh, who in her silence pondered these deep mysteries, we come to understand and, and see them in a great, greater light. And so it's in this context, I think, of this spiritual tradition, I want to look with you now at uh, Philip's practice and view of silence. And you'll see as we go through, it captures all, all of these realities, which is sort of an amazing thing, that Philip was able to communicate all of this, uh, most of all in, in the way that he lived his life. But uh, before we go on, does anybody have any question or comment on what has been said so far? Yes? So when the saints talk about silence, is it the same as, like, silent prayer? Or is it just, like, I mean, if, <clears throat> if you're concentrating on saying, like, if you're praying the rosary, Mm -hmm. Is that the same, in a silent room, is that the same thing as like, just... Right, it would be making use of the silence to do, as Mary did, which is to meditate upon the mysteries of Christ. And so that's what, silent, well, that's what you would want to see emerge out of the silence, or it could be simply immersing oneself in the silence itself and allowing it to penetrate one's heart that it's not necessarily our making use of our discursive reasoning or making use of our imagination, reflecting on those mysteries alone that makes that silence fruitful. That if that silence is filled with God, 
or some say if that silence is God, then simply bringing ourselves into his presence, acknowledging his presence can be sufficient for us to be something that is deeply transformative. So we can go into the chapel and allow our gaze simply to fall on Christ in the Blessed Sacrament and remain there, saying nothing, not feeling the pressure to fill that silence with our own words. And I think that often happens. We think that there's something uh, not fruitful taking place there, or that we didn't have a good period of prayer unless we thought profound thoughts or read something you know, truly beautiful or you know, prayed the rosary attentively. You know, we might spend that whole time silent and have nothing happen other than that silence. And I think when we realize the fruit and the value of that, then a kind of peace begins to reign within us. You know, we don't have to pressure ourselves. We don't have to try to turn prayer into something to make it valuable, which I think we often are tempted to do, that unless I have this kind of experience in that time of prayer, unless I make it valuable in my own mind, it doesn't have value. Whereas I think when we look at the tradition of the church, it says, this, no, the, the silence has its own value. The silence is filled with God, and we can, we can trust that. Yes? Maybe a helpful analogy for uh, how to integrate prayer and silence. Um, I know a lot of, uh, there are a lot of monks that, in their, in their monasteries, they observe and they, sing, they, they uh, chant the psalms, a very long pause in between the lines. The Lord is my shepherd, there's nothing I shall want. Fresh and green are the pastures where he gives me repose. And the expression I used to kind of describe that is that prayer should be irrigated with silence. That it's like a you know, a field, you know, if it's if it's not irrigated, if it doesn't have the water, you no, know, that you know, going down through the different channels, nothing will grow. The water won't get to it. Uh, same thing with prayer. So the more silence is irrigating it, the more fruitful, more fruit it will bring bring right. forth. Yeah, it's a very good analogy, and often it's in particular with the Psalms that we will rush through them, and uh, uh, some, surprising sometimes when you're in a group of priests where you think they would say it, you know, most meditatively, we, we, there, there's a tendency to go through it rather quickly, to read it as we would be reading a textbook, and, but you're right, you know, to stop, to pause, to allow that word to penetrate deeply, if we're just reading it for the sake of knowledge, or to get through it, it's not going to bear fruit without that silence. Any other thoughts? Yes? Well, and um, to live it out, too, at home, would it be like no television, no radio, or even in the car, just let the silence be yeah. surrounding you, too? To find more and more ways to allow it to emerge. And I think when we begin to do that, when we become conscious of the fact that it is so valuable, we do find more ways to do that. As you just said, you know, that we can get into the car and not turn on the radio and allow ourselves to drive to our next place in that silence or, or praying during that period of time. Or, or letting go of television to a large extent. That uh, it can often be the, the ru ruination of, of prayer, and uh, I think I've mentioned this in some of the other groups that we've had, that Tom, Thomas Merton, in a sort of acerbic way, you know, described uh, television as the destroyer of contemplation, 
that it puts us in this uh, kind of state that is a virtual reality. It mimics contemplation, and and yet it doesn't bear any fruit from us. In fact, just the opposite. And and I think we've sort of joked about this before that when you watch a television screen, the brain activity is the same is less than looking at that blank wall. That it puts you in this kind of it's you zone out, you vegetate, as we often say. And whereas when we enter into the silence that is directed and is open to God, then it can be filled in an extraordinary way. It's just allowing ourselves to regain slowly the, the places that have become filled up with silence in our life. And we do we all do it, I think, with you know, it doesn't have to be our talking or even listening to something. I think it's with computers now, our our phones, you know, that we have access to all this information. There's a lot of noise constantly around around us. And so gradually, uh, when we focus our attention on gaining that silence back, we begin to see how much there is to gain back and, and then begin to yearn for that eventually. But I, I think it's hard. There has to be a conscious decision to simplify one's life and maybe even to let go of things that have habitually been a part of our life or that have even brought us a kind of enjoyment and still do that are, you know, is a form of entertainment. And certainly there is le legitimate entertainment, and I don't want to be extreme here in what I'm saying, but you know, there can be times where we can watch television for many hours, and, and, but when it comes to that silent prayer, it can be very difficult for us, and we'll pick up after five minutes and distract ourselves. So, first in the back, and then we'll... I just want to kind of expand what brother was saying. Father Jim Farnan, a priest in the diocese, mm -hmm. I think he said it most beautifully when he said, think of it as the pause in music. There are pauses built in the score, and if you take those out, it sounds horrible. You know, imagine Beethoven's Fifth Symphony without that tremendous pause between those, those phrases. He says, that's what we have to look at, is that that silence is, you know, it's kind of a pause to make the whole thing more beautiful. Right. I was kind of curious about the connection between music and, I guess, silence and solitude that uh, you brought up with the C.S. Lewis quote, right. because I've noticed at times, like, sitting in front of the Blessed Sacrament in silence, like, you know, different sacred songs or like will kind of start going through, through my head, so to, and even, like, some of, I know, I actually uh, was driving up to Buffalo, New York to uh, visit a friend few weeks ago, it was a Sunday, so I put in some sacred music rather than that, and it was like, I found that actually ended up resulting in a fruitful time of prayer. Right. Like, so it's like, is there some value then also in having like, you know, more meditative music rather than like listening yeah. to Beethoven? There, or there's certain, certain <laughs> kinds of music that, you know, isn't noise, you know, and, uh, you know, Augustine had that quote where, where seeing you pray twice, that music will elevate the, the soul. And for me, it's, it's uh, Russian choral music. There's something that's so beautiful about it that's elevating, that lifts, lifts you up. And, you know, I think we've probably gotten away from a sense of the importance or the value of that within the church. The big part of the oratorian tradition, uh, especially during Philip's time, was the fostering of sacred music and 
and seeing how important and valuable that was. Or simply in events like this, that there would always be the singing of hymns that would be involved as well. That there is something that raises the mind and the heart to God. There is a form of prayer. So we won't want to say putting on the radio and listening to Beyonce or somebody like that would be the same as you know, singing a hymn. Any other thoughts before we go on to Phillips? Okay, let's go into the little reflection here. The great benefit which the soul derives from retirement and the virtue of silence is clearly shown by the desire which David implored them of God. Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth, and by the admonition of St. James the Apostle, that he must not esteem himself religious who does not bridle the tongue. If any man think himself to be religious, not bridling his tongue, but deceiving his own heart, this man's religion is vain. So it's interesting, this reflection begins uh, with what we were talking about earlier, that uh, often silence begins with simply controlling our speech, not saying immediately what comes to mind. And that discipline of simply remaining silent and learning to foster that discipline can be very important. And so this is where the author begins. Let us therefore esteem silence to be a most important thing. The mother of silence is retirement, or what we've called solitude at this, up to this point. And St. Philip, who had to pass his life in the midst of Rome, which seemed opposed to retirement, which is generally only to be found in the deserts, was warned by God by a special revelation that he should live like a hermit there. The saint obeyed, as did also his companions, of whom Father Pietro Consolini said that the first fathers of the congregation were stayers at home, and that Father Caesar Baronius said to himself, Stay at home, Caesar, that he might not be unlike the Holy Master, who was the most careful to stay at home, either in the church or in his cell, and never left the house unless constrained to do so on works of charity. I was going to make one of the other guys do this group tonight because I would think that people would feel that I've made this up. <laughs> the whole idea of the oratorians being stayers at home. It sounds <laughs> conspicuously uh, like someone here. <laughs> but it's interesting, you know, Philip, you couldn't characterize him as being in, in any way aloof from others or unengaged. You know, it was just the opposite, that he was fully engaged in a very personal way in the lives of others. But part of that capacity to do that emerged from his deep life of prayer. It was out of that, again, that intimacy with God, the true intimacy with others became a possibility. And he would move back and forth between those on a day-to-day -day basis, leave the house certainly for works of charity, engage others about the faith, but as soon as that work could be done, retreat again to that solitude, that silence, where you could be refreshed and renewed by God. And this is why the Oratorian's room is held in such importance. I mentioned it before, it's called the nest or the nido, and that as soon as one is finished with work, you would 
retire there as quickly as, as you can in order to immerse yourself again in the things that lead to contemplation, either your spiritual reading or simply prayer itself. So I did not make this up. This was <laughs> written by an Italian priest. <laughs> Any thoughts so far on what has been said? Though according to Turugi, a spiritual man should, like St. Catherine of Siena, from, his, from in his heart, a form, I'm sorry, in his heart, a cell in which to retire frequently when in the midst of worldly occupations. And though if a man cannot retire into himself, there find that peace, and, and there find that peace which the Holy Spirit gives good consciences, he will never derive it from persons or places. Still, we should delight in retirement as far as becomes our state, since St. Philip, from his youth up, as far as he could, lived in solitude. His life was esteemed eremitical, and he was always most addicted to retirement. And so, you know, we should, through this movement back and forth between solitude and our, our work, then be able to de uh, develop a kind of cloister within the heart, so that when we are engaged in our day-to-day -day occupations, whenever there is a break in that work, we can step back, retire, as it were, to that cloister for a moment, engage in intimate communication with God, and then step back into whatever we're doing. And this is a really important thing for those living in the world, and I often think, in particular, for those who have jobs that really require uh, great attention or for mothers who are taking care of children where their attention has to be there, that often it is this movement throughout the course of the day, back and forth between their busy engagement and the cloister within the heart, that their holiness is, is going to grow. And the need for that is even greater, to maintain a kind of peace and tranquility of mind and heart when you have three or four kids yapping at you and you're trying to do you know, one thing after another. How is it that you maintain a prayer life in the midst of that? Uh, most often we become anxious or disturbed, and I think when we're able to form the heart in this way, it becomes much easier for us to step into those things, to not lose our tranquility and, and peace while we're in them, and then as soon as we can, retire back to that, that silence. Uh, it's interesting here that... Uh, he speaks of a peace which the Holy Spirit gives good consciences. So, you know, part of what gives us a good conscience and what gives peace to our heart is having our passions rightly ordered. And it is through this discipline of, of prayer, of you know, enter, entering very deeply into, into our hearts that we begin to, to see our, our passions and their struggle with them on a day-to-day -day -day basis. And it's when that purity of heart begins to develop that we come to know a kind of peace of conscience then as well. And it's also here in, in solitude that discernment takes place. And again, this seems to be something very important in our day, that the capacity to discern the will of God. How is it that we know the will of God in our lives or whether we are choosing what we desire? You know, and 
I think when we understand that it's in solitude that that discernment begins. And when we look at the life of someone like Philip Neary, we begin to see that very clearly. That here as a young man of 18, it was out of that solitude and silence that he was able to discern the will of God, that he wasn't called to this life as a businessman, but was rather called on to something else, to pursue the deeper affections and desires of his heart for, for holiness. Did you have a comment? No, I had a thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, as just, uh, I know a lot of businessmen that are really devout mm-hmm. and live, uh, take their spiritual life uh, really seriously. And it's almost, after you know, listening to all of this about the importance of silence, that a person can be in the world and still have that, that spirituality be such a significant part of right. his or her life. It's almost that that's, that's more challenging. Yeah. In many ways, right. Yeah, that, you know, if you are in, a, in an environment or in a, a work like we have where you, know, you just the, the daily prayer and times of prayer throughout the day. Adoration, a chapel in your own house. Like, what luxury mm-hmm. we have. And those in the world that don't have that benefit but actually still have a, a, a vigorous spiritual life. Right. It's almost more amazing. When you, right. you look, looking at it like sort of a, sh- it's a shadow. Yeah. It's a I think as a priest surprising. you begin to see that in the confessional too. You see the depths of uh, people's spirituality. Can you name a specific? Sure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Anyone come to mind? Wow. They're trying to slip me up. I was prepared. I knew when mm-hmm. you had a question. <laughs> Listen carefully. No, it's a, that's a good point. Though that it does, I think there is a greater discipline needed in the world, especially as it is today, because so much of sort of the normalcy that uh, used to exist in life. I remember even in growing up that on how different the weekends were and the periods of silence uh, in the home, you know, uh, where there was rest taking place, or people were reading, or a meal was being prepared, you know, the Sunday dinner. There wasn't all the running around. That takes place now. Like uh, it's interesting that the greatest shopping day now has become Sunday, but the you know the markets are are filled, and because Saturday has become you know soccer day or something else like that, and so you know what used to be free time for the family, silent time that did allow a kind of silence to naturally occur, has been stripped. So a, a real discipline in day-to-day life now, and an ability to see the value uh, and the preciousness of silence is needed, that we would seek to regain some of that for ourselves and do the things that you mentioned earlier, you know, begin to turn off the television, the radio, to gradually uh, get that bit of silence back that we need so that our lives can have a a Christ-centered focus to them. Anything else? Yes. I agree that we should turn off, you know, the television and the radio, but I think nowadays it's more important to turn off your cell phone. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Especially at mass, if you would. <laughs> 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 but I didn't expect.
expect that to get such a laugh. Huh? <laughs> we didn't hear. What's that? We didn't hear. That especially turning off the cell phone, he, he, he said, was important. It's important to turn off the television and the radio with the cell phone. And I, I agree that the cell phone has become the new television and the, the radio. In fact, to a greater degree, I think we are, it has become part of us and because of its mobility, that you couldn't carry around a television with you, but now you can. <laughs> you can carry around a movie theater on your phone. Before, I just have to ask this, so we can, but we can watch as many hours of EWTN as we want. <laughs> no, actually not. It's funny, uh, Benedict Rochelle, when he was on there, he said, Mother will probably kill me for saying this, but he said the Saints would probably never watched EWTN. That they wouldn't have watched television, you know, that it just wouldn't have been part of their life. Precisely, I think, because of what we are, are looking at here, that they would have seen the distraction of it. So even that which uh, is good and holy, you know, or like discussions like this or television programming about religious things, if done in an extreme, can be just as harmful. It can become part of the noise of our day-to-day -day life. And so even with things like that, we would have to be careful. I, I would think, too, in a case like that, it would be, it would be useful to, to think about like levels of advancement. Like the Saints, are, right. the Saints aren't going to be watching EWTN, but maybe other people would find it useful. Enriching, or, right. Yeah. You know, it's a way to maybe get out of uh, other forms of TV. Yeah, right. You know, kind of like rich, and then you kind of graduate from TV altogether. MTV to EWTN. <laughs> but I, I think too, it's it's challenging to think about what to do with children in this case because it's so. I see it with my in my family with my brothers and their kids. It's just so tempting for parents to, like, let the kids be babysat by the some television. device yeah. or TV. Um, getting, I remember as a kid. You know, I'm not. I'm old enough where, you know, we just didn't. The bus ride to school was just really boring, okay. and it wasn't. Uh, I was thinking about this actually when Darren asked his question about just silent. Can, can it just be silence? Can it be? Is, is silence always a matter of prayer? Right. I think it probably is good just to kind of let kids be bored. Mm -hmm. Like let them experience silence. Let them feel the passage of time. Not 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 uh, let them indulge. Kids can't be temperate with these things. I just don't think they have the psychological strength to, to, so I think parent, a big challenge for parents, I think, is to find ways of regulating their, their, the, the child's eagerness to indulge that. Yeah. Parents are so frightened now that they overly program things for their kids, and they feel that if they don't give them enough, you know, that they'll somehow far, fall behind. But that silent, it's, it's funny, same thing for me growing up. You know, I spent time just like digging around in the creek you know, looking for the crawdads, you know, flipping over rocks and stuff, and, and you know, letting time pass during the, the summer. And that's pretty important for form, formation as a person. You begin to sort of be able to synthesize things that you experience in your day-to-day -day life. And if all that gets crowded out, you wonder what's going to happen. You know, if there's going to be a stunting of, uh, of emotional formation, that takes place there. Yes? I think there are different types of silence and different types of solitude. Mm -hmm. It's not just the absence of speech, your silence. It could lead you to, certainly that could lead you to prayer, but I think sometimes too, prayer, you 
have to turn off because you just need to be silent to go in to meet the Lord. Sometimes you get thoughts that, oh, I'm like this, and you open yourself up to the Lord, and, and He comes to meet you and talks to you. So that silence is is good as well, not just prayer, and the same with solitude. It's not just uh, distancing yourself from other people. It's going to meet the Lord in a place where, you know, it's, it's very different. Right. It's a combination of it. Yeah. It's not our being antisocial, right. or, or even simply seeking peace of mind, you know, it's, we're, I came across this article that was talking about adoration recently, and it talks about how you would approach the, the Eucharist, and in, especially in that silence, and that we can, we can engage in adoration where we're not really focused upon Christ present to us, that we'll go into the chapel and we'll put our head down and we'll engage, he says, in a kind of Buddhist Eucharistic adoration that will sort of, you know, move into this that thoughtless, mindless kind of state where for us, even, ad even the silence of adoration is to be filled with the presence of Christ or the acknowledgement of the presence of Christ. You know, that we aren't entering in, 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 into the chapel simply to free ourselves from anxiety or to hide from the realities of life. We're we enter into that silence for an encounter with God. And that can be a hard thing. That's why we often will engage in the Buddhist kind of Eucharistic adoration or we'll place something between ourselves and God because there's something about that encounter that really is setting the self aside and allowing ourselves to focus upon God. Whereas we can enter into that and simply be focused on, you know, what we have coming up during the rest of the day, planning our schedule, things such as, as that. Why don't we uh, move along here with the reading. Let us mortify ourselves sometimes by imitating the saint who separated himself from intercourse with men and avoided conversations, however innocent. So mortifying ourselves, again, not making this the self the idol, here, not falling into a kind of idolatry of, of the self, that we have to die to self by allowing our, ourselves to focus fully upon, upon God. And so there is a discipline here that can be challenging, that crucifixion of the ego. And there will be a part of us that, that does resist engaging in that. Silence is connected to retirement, and this, so far as it was, was in accordance with the Institute, was especially loved by St. Philip during his whole life. We should love it, like Flaminio Ricci, devoting at least some hours of the day to its observance. Amongst other innumerable good effects which this silence produced in St. Philip, we are told that it greatly assisted him in the contemplation of divine things. So it allowed that space to emerge where he could begin to enter into a deeper meditation upon the mysteries of Christ's life and death, the mysteries of the Passion. To produce another example, Father Alessandro Fideli greatly loved retirement, prayer, and contemplation, in which he found his delight and his advantage. Brother Batista Flores says of him, the affection which he bore the exercises of the oratory made him a friend of silence and solitude, a lover of home and of his room, 
and he disliked to go far from his nest. Also that Cardinal Antoniano, who was most familiar with the congregation, used to call him the silent one. So what struck me about these paragraphs was the repeated word love or affection or desire that we, we need to be able to foster that, that it might not be something that comes to us naturally, that we have to begin to develop a taste for solitude and silence and allow it to begin to emerge more and more in our life. Any final comments? Yes. As we were reading this, I was thinking about maybe a possible objection you can raise to this. Uh, it would be very common to make, make this objection today. Um, People really like the Myers-Briggs personality test, and I think this can be dismissed very easily uh, by saying, oh, this is introverted spirituality. This is not made for extroverted. And you know, that's, we know better now that people are different kinds of personalities, and you don't have to be like one type. But I think, to answer my own objection, that, that's, <laughs> that, doesn't, that doesn't work. I think about this exactly this last paragraph, you know, the, uh, the idea of desire, the idea of going out of oneself, that there is, and going into solitude, it's not retreating away from other people so you can be, you know, so you can, you know, increase your energy by being alone. It's actually going out of yourself to meet our Lord. Uh, that is a, uh, like a John of the Cross's poem, uh, The Dark Knight. You know, uh, you know, during the night, I, I left my house, uh, oh, uh, happy enterprise, that I, uh, you know, all my house was silent. You know, he went to go seeks the seeks the beloved, but that's that's what's happening in silence is that we're we're going out of ourselves to meet to meet God, and that is it's very extroverted. It's also very introverted. It kind of transcends that whole category. Yeah, just on you know, for, on a natural level, for those personality types, the the value of the silence, the and the reason for the value of it can be different. For the introvert, that often engaging in the world can be something that is deeply draining. It requires a lot to step out of self and to, you know, have this kind of generosity in one's love. And so the retreating into the prayer and engaging God in that prayer gives strength, you know, renews them in spirit in order to be able to do that, you know, to, to step out of themselves again and again, even though the preference would be perhaps to retreat into, into themselves in a, a selfish kind of way. But it's just as important for the extrovert who might be energized by the external encounters. But the danger there is to get caught up in them. And so the silence can be something that is very grounding for them. They become rooted in their relationship with God so that those interactions become fruitful for, for the sake of God, that they aren't simply satisfying their own natural needs or pleasure in those encounters, but they're allowing them to be godly encounters. But the silence in each case is just as important. It just has a, has a different effect upon the individual. Yes? Well, I guess, you know, we can pray or, you know, try to get rid of um, noise, but um, when you think about it, if we're not silent, how are we gonna? How else can God speak to us? And I don't, you know, I don't propose to know that I'll know when He speaks to me. But if I'm not, if I don't, if I'm not quiet, then I guess how will I hear Him? Especially if, if 
it is in, in the silence in particular that, you know, this is what we, you know, Brother Peter brought up John of the Cross, and he, when he talks about prayer and contemplation, he talks about the limits of our discursive, uh, you know, reasoning, our imagination, all of our faculties don't have the capacity to uh, encounter God as he is in himself that we do have to enter into that dark, obscure knowing of faith in order to encounter him. In the same way, I think we can speak of silence. It's entering into that, that deep silence that we're able then to hear God speak to us the word he desires to make known to us. And that we, again, can experience and, and hear in and through our, our faith. And it's hard because, again, it's a kind of dark, obscure knowing or hearing. Uh, and, and so it's easy for us to want to step out of that and replace it with something that feels more concrete or tangible for us. Yes? I would imagine having a ministry to run the people who might be easier for them to be externally Right. That's right. That's a good point. And the big part of the tradition is focusing on both. Certainly, the external silence is important, but often, as you said, the greater struggle is with the internal silence. The thoughts, ideas, imagination can be pulling a person in thousands of directions. And so, especially in the eastern part of the tradition, there's the use of short prayers, and Philip Neary said these all the time as well, that in order to silence the mind and the heart, they would make use of a short, short prayer like the Jesus prayer, or, O oh God, come to my assistance, O oh Lord, make haste to help me, in order to gently set aside those thoughts, in order to move from a multiplicity of thoughts to simplicity onto Christ. And so you're right, it's not just the external silence, it's what the external silence allows to take place. And it might simply be that battle with all those thoughts going on in the mind and the heart. But yes, that's often where the, the most fierce battle takes place. Yes? Doesn't it in time take time to get into the spirit of knowing God deeper through this peace, growing in peace with Him, and maturity with Christ. Yeah. And it grows some quickly, some slowly, right. but it usually does take a, a time of formation, right? Right. To get yeah. deep with Christ and the Spirit. Right. There, there's a development, development that takes place there. And as you said, with some, depending upon you know, God's wisdom and what He has planned for them, like, say, Therese of Lisieux, you know, in a very things were telescoped for her in a very short time. She was able to enter into that contemplation, and for others, it's throughout the course of an entire lifetime that that deepening take pla takes place. All right. Well, we close there with uh, the prayer to Saint Philip. And together we pray. Look down from heaven, Holy Father from the loftiness of that mountain to the lowliness of this valley, from the harbor of quietness and tranquility to this calamitous sea. And now that the darkness of this world hinders no more those kindly eyes of thine, 
from looking clearly into all things. Look down and visit, O most diligent keeper, this vineyard which thy right hand planted with so much labor, anxiety, and peril. To thee then we fly, from thee we seek for aid. To thee we give our whole selves unreservedly. Thee we adopt as our patron and defender. Undertake the cause of our salvation. Protect thy clients. To thee we appeal as our leader. Rule thine army, fighting against the assaults of the devil. To thee, kindest of pilots, we give up the rudder of our lives. Steer this little ship of thine, and placed as thou art on high, keep us off all the rocks of evil desires, that with thee for our pilot and guide, we may safely come to the port of eternal bliss. Amen. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. And only God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. And our closing hymn is, O God, Beyond All Praising. And uh, it's always it's easier to sing when you're standing. Oh, God, beyond all praising, we worship you today. And sing the love amazing that songs cannot be.